0: I want to ask you to grab a Bible with me and open to the book of Romans, chapter 6. Romans, chapter 6, is our text for this morning. And as you turn, let me introduce the message by talking a little bit about one of the dynamics that flows throughout this whole chapter of Scripture. You know, for our history, and how horrific our history is in the United States with regard to the practice of slavery... The stories of heroism from those people who were attempting to free slaves are equally as glorious. You know, just 40 minutes south of here, in a little town called Hanoverton, Ohio, there's a history of a town that was known as a place where escaped slaves would go and seek sanctuary. And even some of the key leaders of that town had dug tunnel systems from one shop under the street to another inn or to another restaurant so that slaves could hide and move about freely when either the law enforcement or their masters came to look for these escaped slaves. Heroic acts on the people of that town. The 15th president of the United States was a man named James Buchanan. And while Buchanan was in office... He was unable to end the practice of slavery in our nation, but one thing that he did do, and one thing he was known for, was the purchase of a number of slaves throughout the course of his presidency. He would purchase them, and then he would move them back to his home state of Pennsylvania, where he would immediately just set them free. (laughs) And as this continued to evolve, and as more people began to notice and and began to do likewise, we saw in American history that these acts of self-sacrifice of many people and bravery on the part of many people and a greater vision for humanity than their culture would give them was something that rose to the fore among some of these people. And yet as wonderful as it must have been, for people to be setting slaves free, and as wonderful as it must have been for the slaves themselves to actually be set free, you can imagine a scenario or the dynamic that would be incredibly difficult. That some of these slaves, the reality of their situation was such that they did not fully understand or even fully embrace. Think about it for a minute. Think about being born into slavery. Being born into a dynamic in which you have a whole paradigm for life that is set out before you. You learn the rules, you follow them diligently, you only have one vision for your future and is within this paradigm of being a slave. And then, all of a sudden, upon being purchased and then set free, the whole framework for your understanding of existence changes immediately. And as a result, you could see some enjoyed their newfound freedom very clearly. Others struggled with the new liberties that they had. And some went on acting like slaves. You can see this in other areas of life. You can see this when it comes to foreigners who move to a different country. They're set in one framework for life and society and existence and and well-being, and all of a sudden everything changes, and there's a struggle to adjust. You can see this with regard to children when they leave the home and go off to college. They live under mom and dad's roof, and all of a sudden, all the framework and rules and guidelines are seemingly out the window as they have new liberties on campus. You see this with people who have been married to one person for 40 or 50 years and their spouse dies. And they try to figure out how to go on in this life when everything they know has all of a sudden changed. And you see this historically with slaves. Some enjoy their new freedoms. Others struggle with the liberties. And some just keep on acting Like slaves. It is that dynamic of slavery that Paul uses to explain an important part of our spiritual life in Romans chapter 6. you have your Bibles open with me, please look at Romans chapter 6. If you have not yet opened the scriptures, grab a pew Bible in front of you. It's found on page 942. And today will be the first of two sermons on Romans 6 verses 1 to 14. So please follow along with me. Grace. Underlying Romans chapter 6, Paul sets forward a lingering question that naturally arises from the preceding chapter. And the question might be summarized this way Does the gospel actually promote sin? He asks in verse 1, what shall we say? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And he's asking the question in terms of if God's grace is so lavish in its effect, if it's so incredibly free to us, and if it really does cover all of our sins, can't we just keep on sinning? And won't his grace just still abound? Or... Does the gospel of grace actually promote the ongoing practice of sin? To understand the question, we need to remind ourselves a little bit about Romans 5. We saw a couple weeks ago, if you remember, with me in the second half of Romans chapter 5, we saw that our biggest problem in life, is not the sins, the individual sins that we commit, but rather it is our union to our earthly father, Adam, Adam the father of all humanity. And because Adam sinned and we are united to Adam, therefore we sinned. And as a result of being united to him, being of his line, that we have the same consequences of this sin that he does consequences that lead us ultimately to death. And so we use this analogy that there's a realm of Adam, the earthly realm, that all who are descendants of Adam fall into this dynamic of sinning with Adam and ultimately having the death with Adam. But as Romans 5 tells us, That those who put their faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, no longer are bound to their union with their earthly father Adam, but rather they become bound to him. And as a result, Jesus' perfection and righteous standing before God is then imputed to those who have their faith in him. So God looks at them and they see the perfection, God sees the perfection of his son. And so where Adam's realm is the realm of sin that leads to death, the realm of Jesus is the realm of grace that leads to righteousness and ultimately to life. And so when a proper understanding of how this happens begins to come to the fore, we see that it is simply God's grace and grace alone that you obtained the access to his son. God's overwhelming grace applied to the life of those who have faith in Jesus. That we live in the realm of grace. That Christians cannot help but be surrounded by the grace of God. That in the midst of all of the turmoil of this life and all of our personal mistakes, that the grace of God is incredible. And because of Jesus' perfection, we have unlimited access to this grace. Sin is strong, but grace is stronger. Sin is strong, but Jesus is stronger. But the temptation that comes with living in the realm of grace is a reality, I think, that we've all felt. And that sounds something like this. I'm all in. I thank God for his grace. I know that no amount of good works of mine contributed to my salvation. I bring nothing to the table. It's only by the grace of God that I'm saved and I'm happy for it. But... If I didn't have to be a good person to be saved, if I had to be saved precisely because I'm not a good person, and he saves me anyway, well then why should I be a good person now that I am saved? can I just continue to sin? Because God's grace abounds? I mean, after all, where sin increases, grace increases all the more. Paul says in chapter 5. Now I'm sure that you probably never put it in those words. You wouldn't think those things in in that kind of sequence. But you do think this. What's one more sin? God's just going to forgive me anyway. I know that he will. So does it really matter if I do this thing that's sinful to him? Every Christian has struggled with that temptation. And Paul gives the answer. Romans 6 verse 1, Are we to continue to sin that God's grace may abound all the more? By no means. And then he gives a reason for the answer. And the reason why you shouldn't continue to sin is that through faith, you are united to Christ. When you think about the idea of being united to someone or being in a union with someone, this is a term that we use to describe some of the most powerful or strongest relationships that we have in existence. Maybe a trivial example would be a sports team, people that are on the field together, they're moving toward the same goal, and it takes them being united. It takes 11 players on a soccer field to come and function as one unit to win the game, to pursue the championship, and they even have names like Manchester United. Or you could think of a group of colonies in early American history, distinct in their nature, And yet, coming together, multiple entities coming together to form one nation. And so they become the United States of America. They're one in their nature. Or you might think of it in terms of the most intimate relationship that we have in this life, which is the relationship with your spouse. What do we call it when two people come together and form one in a sacred union with each other? See, the idea of being united to somebody or being in union with someone describes one of the most powerful aspects of a relationship that we can have in this life. And so when we use the phrase union with Christ, or in verse 5, when Paul says we have been united with him, what he's saying is this is, this is a way to describe the variety of ways in which we are in relationship with Jesus. It includes terms in the New Testament like being in him and him being in us and us being with him and us being like Christ. Again and again and again, we see this in the New Testament. And I'm guessing that you probably haven't thought a lot about your relationship with God in terms of being united with Jesus. But your union with Christ This mysterious union that you have with him through faith is one in which you receive every benefit of your spiritual life and salvation. That's a pretty bold statement, so I just want to say it one more time so it sinks in. Through your union with Christ, you receive every single benefit of your spiritual life and your salvation. In fact... If you've been reading the New Testament, you see these phrases repeated again and again and again. And most often you think of them in some sort of vague, distant terms. In Christ. In him. In the Lord. In Christ Jesus. But they are by far the most dominant way that the Christian's relationship is described with Jesus in the New Testament, used over 242 times. So what does it mean to be in this mysterious, mystical union with Christ? It's the key to understanding Romans chapter 6. And so in part 1 this week, we want to spend some time on it. And, And what I want you to do is just to listen to the Bible with me. As I read for you the benefits of your union with Christ and where we see this in the Bible. What are some of the blessings or benefits of being united to Christ? Well, through union with Christ, you possess eternal life in him. Romans 6, 23, we'll get to it in a couple weeks. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So when you hear that phrase, in Christ, listen for it carefully. You'll hear it again and again. Another benefit for the Christian is that you are justified in Christ. Romans 8, chapter 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ or in union with him. You're glorified in Christ. Romans 8:30. Those whom he predestined, he also called, and those who called, he also justified, and to those whom he justified, he also glorified. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. And we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. This comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Another benefit of your union with Christ is that you're sanctified in him. You're made holy as a result of being united to him. 1 Corinthians 1-2, Paul writes to the Corinthian church, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those in every place who call upon the name of the Lord Jesus, both their Lord and ours. You're called in Christ. 1 Corinthians 1-9, God is faithful by whom you were called into fellowship with his son, of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. You're made alive in Christ. It's one of the great benefits of being united to him. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. You are adopted as children of God in Christ. Galatians 3.26 says, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. You're elected in Christ. Ephesians 1.4 says, Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. And you are raised with Christ. Colossians 3.1, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. And so you begin to catch a flavor that the Bible paints this picture, that this in Christ language is not there to simply describe some sort of vague way in which you have a relationship to Jesus, nor is it to describe a mere proximity to Jesus. But to be in Christ means that you are united to him, profoundly, mysteriously, and that you, being joined together with him through faith, will never be separated from him, and you will receive all of the benefits that he has for you that are applied as a result of this union. And so along these lines, you see that not only are we talked about as being in Christ, but Christ is talking about being found in us. We could read plenty of scripture passages. I'll just read one for the sake of time, but it's one of my favorites. Colossians chapter 1, 26 and 27, talks about the mystery that's been hidden for ages and generations, but now is revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of this glorious mystery, the riches of the glorious mystery of God, Christ in you, the hope of glory. We could go on, but you get the point. You, through faith in Jesus, become intimately connected to, joined with, one with the person of Jesus Christ himself, In Romans chapter 6 verse 5, please look at it with me, says that if you have been united with him, then you've been united with him in a death that's just like his and you'll certainly be united with him in a resurrection that's like his. The death and resurrection of Jesus. The most important three days of his life. The most important sequence of events in all of human history. And Paul says that you, in a mysterious way, participated in these things through your union with him. Wow. And if at this point you're united with Christ, then Paul says very plainly in chapter 5 verse 6 that you are dead to sin. For while you were still weak, Look at it with me in chapter 5, verse 6. While you were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. And then putting forward to chapter 6, verse 6, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. And so you see the connection, right? You see the connection that our sin is carried to the cross through our faith in the in the person of Jesus, which is a result of our union with him. This means that for those of you who are united to Christ, you are no longer enslaved to sin. Chapter 6, verse 6. What do slaves do? Exactly what their master tells them to do. They can't help but do anything else. So, if you're enslaved to sin, what do you do? You do exactly what your master's sin tells you to do. So, Romans 5 and 6 come together to say that under the banner of our father Adam, we are all enslaved to the sin of Adam and we do exactly what our master tells us to do. We can't help but do anything else. But in Christ, you died. With him, And dead people don't sin, <laughs> verse 7. Dead people can't sin. And in fact, then, in rising with him, you're set free from that very sin. Now, if you died with him and you're united with him in his resurrection, and therefore dead people don't sin anymore... And alive people are set free. If you're set free and united to Christ, but then you continue to go on living in sin, what are you acting like? You're acting like a slave. But you're not a slave anymore. You're acting like the slave that doesn't understand or know or engage in the brand new realities of their freedom. In Christ, you're set free. So you don't have to keep acting like a slave. Verse 11. And so, you're dead to sin. But through your union with Christ, this means that you are now alive to God. And... You see the logic, right? You see the significance of how our union with Jesus clearly sets forward the trajectory of the passage. If you don't understand that, then you really don't understand what death and resurrection for your own life really means. You really don't understand how I can escape the bounds of sin in my life. But if you understand the fact you're united to Him, then you become alive to God as He is alive in His very own resurrection. And this is expressed in a number of ways in these 14 verses. Let me read a couple very quickly. Verse 4, look at it with me. Just as Christ was raised from the dead, we walk in the newness of life. Verse 11, you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Verse 12 and 13, don't let sin reign, but present yourselves to God as people who have been brought from death to life. Verse 14, you're not under law, but you're under grace. We might say the point of the passage is this. Dead to sin and alive to God. That's the life of those united to Christ. Dead to sin, alive to God is the life of those who are united to Christ because of his death and because of his resurrection. And the implications, my friends, are are rather profound. Let me just give you a couple. If the gift of God's grace is not just a one-time gift, but being set free from slavery changes the trajectory of our entire life, then the status change that God gives us through his grace is something that defines who we are and how we act and how we engage God and the rest of humanity for all of our days. (laughs) All because of grace. Implication number two, if you are dead to the power of sin and sin no longer has dominion over you, as it says in verse 14, then no matter how strong the pull is to go back to sin, no matter how significant the temptation is, you have the ability to resist. You don't have to sin anymore. Now we still do, because we still live in this world, because Jesus hasn't completed his work in us yet. But you can have victory over sin. That's the power of being united to Jesus. You're no longer a slave. Here's another implication when we do sin, we're all reminded of our old self. (laughs) We're reminded at times that we desire to keep acting like slaves. And we're conscious of the fact that Christ's work in us is not yet complete. But we're grateful, we're grateful that we are no longer under law, but we're under grace. That we live in the realm of Jesus, which is the realm of grace and righteousness and life. And that is freeing for us. Implication number four. A wonderfully pastoral implication for the Christian. If you've put your faith in Christ and he's united to you, and you are in him, and he is in you, then no matter how difficult your life becomes, you know that the promise of God to never leave you nor forsake you is fulfilled in the person of Jesus because he's never leaving you. He's united to you forever. And so in the darkest of dark hours, you know that God is not somehow looking the other way. You know that he's right there in the person of his son to minister to you, to be the place that you turn, to be the one that you lean on. And conversely, if you think for a moment as a true Christian that you might decide to take a season off where you can hide from God and that you're going to go about your way and you're going to go back to acting like a slave to sin for a while, but you're actually united to Jesus, then you know that in the season of your rebellion against God, that he is right there as well, beckoning you to come back, and that God's grace to you in that very moment is for Jesus to say, don't act like a slave. You're dead to that. Instead, be alive to God. I think an implication number five is slightly in a side, but it's very important to consider if one of the ways that God chooses to communicate to us our union between Christians and Jesus as the most important, beneficial relationship that we can have in this life, if one of the ways that he chooses to help us understand that reality is by paralleling it with our marriages to our spouses in Ephesians chapter 5, then how important do you think that your marriage is to God? If God is describing the most important eternal relationship that we have, and he says that the earthly parallel is a relationship between a husband and a wife, two separate entities becoming in one in union with one another, then how important does God look at your marriage? Incredibly important. Your marriage is a reflection, a daily reminder of God's greatest spiritual benefit to you. And if God views it as that important, then my friends, you better make sure that your marriage is reflecting this reality, (laughs) that you work at your marriage, that you fight for your marriage, that you Show kindness toward your spouse and intimacy toward your spouse that you make sure no one else enters your marriage bed, that you choose to love that person and that person alone for all of your days because Jesus is choosing to love you for all of your days. The picture of your union with Christ is seen in your marriage. Implication number six. There's no halfway, is there? You can't be vaguely united to someone. You're either united to them or you're not. (laughs) And so, if you're here today and you've been thinking about a relationship with God or Christianity in such a way that you want to receive the true benefits of it, but while still remaining a couple steps back and keeping a healthy distance in your mind, then you need to know that you can't be vaguely united to somebody. You either you are or you aren't. <laughs> and I would ask you to consider why aren't you? Wouldn't you, to even today, put your faith in this son of God who gives you so much grace and all of the benefits for life and eternity are found in him. Why would you wait any longer to receive these types of benefits? Why would you hold him back when all he wants to do is bestow the very best things for you? Would you make a decision for him? in faith today to forgive you of your sins, to release you of being a slave to those sins, to put your faith and trust for your future with him? Dead to sin, alive to God. That is the life of those who are united to Christ. Dead to sin and alive to God. In closing, I think of the old story about Abraham Lincoln. I don't know if it's true Or not. But Abraham Lincoln is said to one day have gone down to the slave block to buy a slave girl. And as she took one look at the white man bidding on her, she thought to herself, here's another white man who's going to buy me and is going to abuse me. And he won. And as he took hold of his new property, he walked away with her and he looked at her and he said, young lady, you are set free. And this slave girl didn't really have a concept of what that meant. and So she said, what does that mean? He said, it means that you're free. Does that mean, she said, that I can say whatever I want? Yes. Lincoln said, my dear, you can say whatever you want. Does that mean that I can be whatever I want, said the girl? Lincoln said, yes, you can be whatever you want. Does that mean that I can go wherever I want, the girl asked. Yes, he said, you can go wherever you want. And the girl, with tears streaming down her face, looked at him and said, and I will go with you, the one who set me free. Slaves set free. Dead to sin, alive to God. That is the life of those who are united with Christ. Let's pray together and offer thanks to God for freeing us in this way and for giving us all the benefits of his son. Lord God, we pray today a prayer of simple thanks for the profound mystery of our union with Christ and all of the spiritual and eternal benefits that come through it. We didn't choose it, but you in your kindness and sovereign will chose to pour grace down upon us. That while so many are trying to build up to God that you came down to us, through the person of Jesus. That you've changed our reality, that you've changed our paradigm for life, that you've changed our relationship with you, and that you've changed our eternal destiny. And for anyone here today, Lord, who has not yet put their faith in you, it is our most sincere prayer that today would be the day where they too become united with your son. We pray this in Jesus' name.